I have been waiting a long time to say this, a long time to say this. Why don't we stand together for the reading of God's Word? If you can, please stand and join me. Hear the Word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope firmly on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited for your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. And the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And Father, we do ask for your great blessing at this time as we look at your word, having worshiped you, sung, we pray that you would remain worshiped by us as we look at this text at this time. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated if you would and grab your scriptures if you have them available. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. We are continuing on in what we have been looking at and looking through 1 Peter. And as I say numerous times, I would encourage you to have your Bible open. It's certainly going to help as we look through this passage together today. I don't know if you've ever taken a job or been given an assignment where the expectations are not really clear, where you don't know exactly what the outcome is or you don't know what's expected of you. If you, haven't, if you can't immediately recall a situation, it shouldn't be hard to imagine what that would be like. What would it be like? if you didn't know exactly what the expectations were that were placed upon you. I had a job when I was in high school, and for whatever reason, I simply could not please my supervisor, the boss. Uh, She was on me all the time, and I could not find a way. I I didn't know what I was, I, I didn't know how to satisfy her, how to make her happy with the work in which I was doing. And I remember talking to my father about it at a very low point at one point. And I remember him asking, you know, well, what does she want? What does she expect? 
And I was kind of at a loss. I didn't even know what it is that she expected for me. And so there was that frustration of not knowing what the expectations were. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of question and mystery when it comes to the Christian faith. First Peter is, uh, a lot of the focus of First Peter is upon this emphasis upon uh, suffering and how it is that Christians suffer and what does it mean to be a people who are suffering. And of course, if you are involved in ministry or if you're awake at all to the things that are happening around this world, you know that that question of, well, why is there so much suffering and, and why are some of the difficulties that we are experiencing right now in our society, why do all those things happen? And we know that our Lord, His hand is right there present upon those things. We understand that God is sovereign over all, that He is providentially in charge of every aspect of our lives. And yet, it's frustrating that there's so, many, so much uncertainty out there. Luckily, we have a passage like this before us. We have so many spots within the Scripture that help us to see and to understand clearly what the expectations of our God is upon us. There is no question mark about that. There are lots of things that are mysteries before our Lord, but there should be no mystery about what our God desires for, from us. And there is so often the case, and I know this as I speak with other people as well in ministry, people waking up always, well, what, what, what does God want from my life today? How can I please my Lord? What can I do that would make Him satisfied, would bring God joy? And there's a question mark about that, but there shouldn't be because He spends so much time telling us exactly what His expectations for us are. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture that we just read in that it lays those clearly out before us. In the midst of this passage, all that text that I've just read, there are seven imperatives, seven commands that God gives in this text. That God, through Peter, speaking to His people, speaking to each one of you, He says, this is my desire for you. And He gives commands. Now these commands that He gives, these imperatives are not options, they're not suggestions, they're not thoughts that you might go about in your life. These are explicitly stated as commands from God to His people. If you identify yourself as a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is speaking to you right now about the commands, about the expectations He has for you and for us together. So let's take a look at some of these. How do we hear the expectations that our Lord has placed before us? It begins right off the bat in verse 14. Sorry, verse 13. The very first expectation, the first imperative, the first command that is in this section. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace. Set your hope fully on grace. Now, every time we read hope in the Scriptures, we always have to stop a little bit because our English language has changed and, and shifted our understanding of the word hope. So we have to help one another understand what we mean by this. When we hear the word hope, boy, I really hope this for you, what we're saying is, gee, I really have this wish for you, or I, or I kind of dream that this might happen. That's kind of what we, when we say hope. 
And if you read something like, set your hope on grace, it's possible that you would get it in your head that what Peter is saying here is, wouldn't it be wonderful if you think about grace? Or wouldn't it be wonderful if grace comes to you at some time in the future? That's not the biblical understanding of hope. The biblical understanding of hope is not a wish fulfillment, a a hope for something in the future or a wish for something in the future. It is the sure, certain confidence of a man or woman who holds passionately to his or her God and says, this is what my God has done, and therefore I know for certain that these things are going to happen. Hope is not a, 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 a possibility. Hope is a certainty. And so what Peter is saying here, he says, set your hope. Now, what does that mean? In the morning, when you wake up and you say to yourself, how is it that I can please my Lord today? What he is saying here in this passage is, set your hope. That is, your expectation, your anticipation of the confident promises of our God. Set your hope on grace. Now, what does he mean by that? Set your hope on grace. Grace, as you will know, is God's unmerited blessing. It's stuff that God pours out upon us that we do not deserve. It's stuff that God overflows into our hearts that we have no expectation of getting, specifically when we don't deserve it. And God nevertheless gives us so, so many great good blessings. That's grace. So what is the command here? Set your hope on grace. What Peter is saying here is as you go about your daily life, as you are acting as a Christian in this world, do so with the confident expectation not of the past grace that saved you. Now that's the way I think most of us might quickly read this. Set your hope on grace. Well, I know grace is what God has done to bring me into His fold, to make me a child of God. That's beautiful. That's your saving grace. That's what's happened in the past. What this text says is set your hope on the grace that is yet to come. Set your confidence, your your expectation upon future grace. Think about that for a second. This is God's expectation for you today. It's God's expectation for you tomorrow. Set your hope, your confident expectation on the fact that God is gracious and He will give you that grace in the future. How is it that He wants you to live today? How is it that He wants you to live tomorrow with the confident assertion that no matter what happens, it is going to be a period that is marked by grace? Unmerited favor. Blessings given to you that you do not deserve. Now that's God's command for you. That's God's command for me. And I think it's worth taking a second and asking yourself, do you live faithfully to that command? Can you say to yourself, hey, when I act as a Christian, when I work in this world, I am doing so in such a way that I have great confidence that God is going to be gracious to me in the future. Or do we serve the Lord? Do we act because we're not really sure and we want to please Him and we don't know if He's going to like what we do? And all? 
Peter says that's not the way to do things. Set your hope on the fact that God is going to be gracious to you. Is there room there for you to confess to the Lord? Is there perhaps room there for you to praise the Lord? Thank you, O God, for the promise of future grace and the fact that I can live every day with the assurance of future grace at your hand. The first command, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The second command then is in verse 14, right next to that. The, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The, the, your former ignorance, that is, before you were a believer. The passions, the desires, those things that drove you, the, the, the motivations in which you have. Do not, what does the text say? What's the command? Do not be conformed to those things. Now, con- by the mere fact that Peter has to tell us, do not be conformed to us, I think should speak to us about what it is that we are about. We are people who are being shaped and molded every single day. There's not a moment of your life where you are not being shaped and conformed to something. The idea that you know we are resistant or that we are for, fully formed or that I am as a, who I am supposed to be is simply not true for any of us. We are malleable, growing people intentionally created that way by God so that at every stage we are being changed. At every stage you are being shaped and molded by our Lord. And here he's saying, make sure that you're not being shaped and molded by the desires of the old life, by the desires that are evil, by the desires that are, that are not part of us. Paul speaks of it this way. He says, do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the power of our God. And so the command here that he's giving to every one of you, when you wake up in the morning and you say, God, what do you want from me today? Here's what God wants for you today. He wants that you would not be shaped by the things that are marking your old life, but that you would be shaped by the things that mark your new life. How great is that? Now, again, does that motivate you to go before the Lord in confession? Dear God, this day, I have not been conscious enough I have not been sensitive enough. I have not been aware enough of the things that are shaping me and molding me. And I only want to be shaped and molded by that which is from our Lord. Is there reason for you to praise and to say, Thank you, God, that you are shaping my life, that you are transforming me, that I am no longer just going to be a victim of the old passions but rather that you are transforming my life. Built right here into the command of Peter, command of God for us today. The next command comes immediately next verse, verse 15. You also be holy in all of your conduct. You also are supposed to be holy. Now, whenever we hear holiness, if you're like me at least, whenever you hear holiness, we immediately gravitate towards 
the grandeur of God, the beauty of God, the majesty of our Lord, something glorious about who God is. That's what it means that He is holy. He is pure and He is righteous and He is just in every way. He's all of those. He's like, take every positive quality and put it all on steroids. That's God. He's just great in all of those ways and all of that is captured by no better word than holy. And now what he says is that he wants you to be... But holiness, and some of you will know this because this is one of these things get tossed out a lot at church. Holiness, the, the actual root word there, it means to be set apart. Why is why when we picture God's holiness, why do we picture it as all those great big things? Because he's been set apart. Apart from what? Apart from us. Apart from all the sin in this world. Apart from all the brokenness of this world. And when... Peter gives that command, you are to be holy. He's saying to each one of you, you are to be set apart today, tomorrow, when you wake up and you say, God, what do you want from me today? He has told you, be holy, be, okay, be pure, morally upright, righteous, good, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yes, that's true. But be holy, be set apart. Set apart for what? set apart as an instrument in our Lord's hands. That's what it means. He desires for you this day. He desires for you tomorrow to be an instrument in the hands of our God. Now, do you think that way about yourself? Do you think that that's what God is calling you to each and every day? Is there a spot here where you should take time and confess before your God, I do not think of myself as an instrument in your hands, and so I don't set myself apart like I know I should. Is there an area where you should praise God and say, thank you, Lord, that for some unknown reason, you see me as an instrument in your hands? I'll build here into this third command. Fourth command then follows a couple verses further down. Uh, Verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Okay, let's help out a little bit. This is uh, Peter's language. Peter is very captured by the idea that we are exiles, that we are ultimately as Christians, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so while we're here upon this earth, we're exiles. We're living a a life removed. We are not where we are ultimately supposed to be. But we are exactly where God has placed us at this time. We're exiles. We live in this world that God himself has claimed and is identified as his. And yet we live here as exiles. Live here. Conduct yourselves with fear. Now I want to make sure that we're not mistaken this one either. Peter is not saying that we're supposed to walk around terrified. You know, we're supposed to walk around scaredy cats of everything. We're being really timid at everything. Nothing frustrates me. You could probably imagine that, uh, knowing me a little bit, about, you know, people that are really timid and all that stuff. Sorry to all you timid folks. You know, uh, God calls us out here not to be timid, but what does it mean here? Because I'm not trying to water down the words of the text. Look at the text. Conduct yourselves with fear. Biblically, when, uh, now, 
sometimes when the Bible uses the term fear, it means terrified. It means scared. Absolutely. But usually, especially in reference to God, in, in re- reference to God, when we are told to live with fear, he, we are talking about that awe, that reverence, that awareness of what? Of the presence of God. You are supposed to conduct yourselves with fear. You're supposed to conduct yourselves in every day, not like you're timid and scared, but rather like you are reverently aware of what? Not of the fact that God is is ruling the world, okay. Not the fact that God's up in heaven, okay. But this idea that God is immediately present with each and every one of you. Uh, my guess is that all of you have a, have a confident assurance that God is ruling in heaven, etc. And all of us know what it's like to get ourselves close to an area of life where we're not supposed to go. Okay, so we're approaching some type of a an attitude or an action or something that we think God will be displeased of. And running through our minds is the idea, hey, God might be displeased with this. And we picture God up in heaven kind of shaking his finger at us, saying, uh-huh, I see you down there, don't do that. And, that. and somehow that's supposed to motivate us not to do the bad thing because God's up in heaven watching us. And we see that. That's not the biblical picture, and it's not the picture here. The picture here is that we are supposed to conduct ourselves with a reverent awe that God is right there with us. Not that He's up in heaven seeing us, but that He's actually right there with us. That's what it means that we conduct our lives with reverent fear. When you get up in the morning and say, God, what do you desire for me today? His point is, how would you feel if I was right physically present with you every second of your life. You'd have an overwhelming sense of reverence, of awe, of fear. That's how you're supposed to conduct yourself every minute of the day. Is there a sense of confession in your life? Lord, we know you're omnipresent. We know you're everywhere. We know that you're right here with us in every action. And yet I don't conduct myself in everything I do with reverent fear. Is there a spot of praise? Is there a a recognition, God, You're with me at every minute and I sense it sometimes and I love it sometimes. Make that more and more a reality in my life. The desires of our Lord. The fifth command is in verse 22. If you look down in verse 22, skipping a little bit then, he says, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. Love one another earnestly with a pure heart. Now, we can go on and on about this text and talk about love. We absolutely should. Uh, The church talks a lot about love and it should because it is such a dominant idea. And certainly, sure enough, this is that idea of that... um, agape love, that divine love, that self-giving love, that sacrificial love. That's the love that's being talked about here. We are supposed to love one another. We are supposed to be overflowing with that kind of love, uh, that agape love for, for each other. Okay, that's good. We can talk about that. I like that term earnestly. You see it in the text there? Love one another earnestly. Earnestly, the, the, the word here implies not just the, the amount, the, the, the depth of love, but
but the extent of love or the, uh, the, the, the continuous nature of love. You haven't loved somebody earnestly. If you sacrifice yourself from somebody and you give of your heart and you are passionate and you are so dedicated to them, but you only do it once or you only do it for a short time, you haven't loved your brother or sister earnestly with a pure heart. This, this idea from Peter is that it is supposed to be characteristic of every aspect of your life. What does God desire for you tomorrow? Not to love each other, but to love each other earnestly, so deep that you can't get to the bottom, and so wide and broad that you can never find its edges. That's what it means to love somebody earnestly. Is there a moment of confession in your life that you do not love earnestly? Or a moment of praise that you have loved earnestly or that you have been loved earnestly by others? And then the fifth, the sixth command down in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. So put away all malice. Now listen to these words. These are the things that you're supposed to put away. All malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I'm taking a look here to make sure. Okay, I know most of you to some extent at this point. None of you, like if I were to make a list of all the people I know that are malice, that are filled with malice, that are filled with deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, none of you would make the list. So you're safe. None of you have to worry about this command. No. That's clearly not the case. Why? Because we've got to remember that always in the Scriptures, it is not just the end goal, and, and this is classic Hebrew thought, when it says, do not do this, they mean do not do this, and everything that leads up to that, everything that leads up to malice, is malice. Every wicked thought Every momentary daydream of how you want to bust on somebody. Every anticipation of something negative happening in somebody's life. Ah, that's not really malice, but it's biblical malice. Get rid of all malice. Get rid of hypocrisy. Wearing a mask. Hypocrisy is wearing a mask. Get rid of of wearing a mask. Get rid of slander. Uh, the, the words that we use, the tongue that we use, and it's just not slander when you get absolutely to that spot of slandering somebody. It's everything that leads up to that. And the put away, the, the verb here, well, the command, uh, Peter says, put away these things. The, the word is to cast aside a burden. So malice, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all these things are considered a burden. Like imagine laying them on your shoulders and to put them aside is to cast them away and to leave them behind as you continue to move on. Is there a moment of confession? Is there a thought of praise of what the Lord has done and is doing in your life? Finally, our seventh command is in verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn infants, now what is it? Long for pure spiritual milk. The NIV version says, crave pure spiritual milk. Crave pure spiritual milk. 
and the, the thought here, okay, so what's pure spiritual milk? This is the, the, that, that which we need to grow and to mature. Crave that that is spiritually going to make you mature before the Lord. What is God's desire for you tomorrow? God's desire for you tomorrow is that you would wake up and that you would crave it. I love that word. Um, I, I love the, the, the intense longing. The, 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 you can't get enough of this. This is the imagery why I like the attachment, like newborn children, like newborn infants. Now, some of you are closer to that stage uh, than what I am. But I remember, what, what, what satisfies an infant when they're hungry? Nothing. They're just going to go on and on and on until they get the nourishment that they need. They're never satisfied with anything else. They're never going to be distracted from something else. They crave the milk and that's the only thing that's going to satisfy them. That's God's desire for you. That you would crave that which is good and that which is best for you so that you can grow and mature and develop in your life. Is that what marks your life? Is there a time of confession here? When we're confronted by this command, is there a time of praise that God has done that work in your life when you're confronted by that command? Having said all that, if we think that this is Peter's point, Peter's point is a list of these seven commands, and we're all supposed to go out there. This is Peter's version of the Ten Commandments. So, you know, the Old Testament they had ten, Peter has seven. So go out there and satisfy all seven of these commandments. Then we're missing the overarching shape and picture that Peter is trying to paint here. Peter's goal here is not to give seven little bullet points, or that's the way it would have appeared in your Bible. But you notice that's not the way it appears in your Bible, because every one of these Every one of these commands comes within the context of what Peter understands us as being. So I want you to go back and grab your Bibles for a second and go to verse 12, 13, at the beginning of this section. At the beginning of this section, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Do you see that? Knowing that you're about to go for. Therefore. That therefore is there for a reason. That therefore is to connect everything that Peter's about to say. Here are seven commands about how to live your life. With everything that has gone before it. What has gone before it? Praise be to the Lord and Father of Jesus Christ. Great blessings He has poured out upon us. He has given us redemption in His Son, Jesus Christ. He has blessed us with every eternal blessing we could possibly need because of everything that Peter has talked about leading up to this. Then he says, because of all these things, therefore I want you to set your hope fully on grace. Why? You can do that. Because of who He made you to be. Look at our next one, verse 14. As obedient children. This is not pejorative. This is not Peter saying, now come on, you be a good little child there and do the things you're supposed to do. Peter rather is saying, look, as obedient children, that's who you are. There is not a single Christian in this room that is not a child. We are children of God. And he's saying, because you're children of God, 
This is how I want you to live your life as children of God. Look at the very next one. Be holy. Why? Because I am holy. God says, I want you to be holy because God Himself is holy. God Himself has been set apart from all of the wickedness and the evil of this world so that He might be an instrument of salvation into our lives. Why are we supposed to be holy? What's the motivation for being holy? What's the drive? Why does Peter tell us this? Because his God is holy. Verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear. Now this is a big chunk, and if you looked at it from verse 18 on following, you would see, why are we supposed to conduct ourselves with that sense of reverent awe of the presence of God? Because he has ransomed us. Because he has saved us with, uh, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That because before the beginning of the world, God has worked powerfully in your life. All of these things the Lord has done. That's the reason why you're supposed to conduct yourselves with fear. Not because he expects you to have the power within you, but because he has done that work for you. The fifth command there. Love one another with a pure heart. Why? Because you have been born again. Do you see it in verse 23? Since you have been born again. And that born again is an everlasting thing. Not with something perishable, but with something imperishable. Your life now can never spoil or fade. That's the blessing that God has given into your life. Do all of these things at the end of the passage in verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The if indeed, it makes it sound like it's hypothetical. It's not. What he's saying there is because you have tasted that the Lord is good. Because you have tasted that the Lord is good, then we should set our hope fully upon that grace. We should not be conformed to the passions of ignorance. We should be holy in all of our conduct. We should conduct ourselves with fear throughout our exile. We should love one another earnestly with a pure heart. We should put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. We should crave pure spiritual milk because of what God has done already for you, we can have a great expectation of the future grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do ask again, as always, for your great blessing, for your comfort, and for your grace as we seek to live these very lives that you have laid out before us. Lord, we have indeed tasted that you are good. We have tasted of the blessings and the benefits that are ours in Jesus Christ. And so we would ask that you would shape us, mold us, transform us in every possible way so that we would know more fully the faithfulness that you have given to us as we set our hope on the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.